Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, Hirosachi Argabright, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 94, where we're talking about The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa and Breasts and Eggs by Miyako Kawakami. You can find a complete transcript and a list of all the books mentioned today linked in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. So it is Women in Translation Month, and we're celebrating by talking about Asian women writers. Yeah! Yeah, so I am so excited. I just love Women in Translation Month, and I have found more books on audio this year than I ever have before, so my TBR is great. (laughs) Yeah, it's a huge win. (laughs) Yeah, so I thought uh, we could talk a little bit about why we have... Uh, Maytol created Women Translation Month and kind of how it's expanded to beyond the original idea to just like celebration of all these women in translation. Awesome. Over, I will link in the show notes a page that on the official Women in Translation Month website mm-hmm. of her stats. I love stats. Oh yeah. We are stats people over here. <laughs> oh yes. I could stare at these graphs for ages. Uh, But the general uh, summary is that approximately 30% of new translations into English are books by women writers. Yes. It might shock some people, but Amazon Crossing is publishing more women in translation than any other publisher. Which to me is very surprising, I feel. Yeah, you know, I I was like, what? But I went and looked, and they have a big push for world literature every year, and they offer, like, oh. free titles to Amazon Prime members, and they're more likely to go to audio because they have Audible right there next mm-hmm, door, mm-hmm. as it were. <laughs> it's fascinating. Interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, and it's also important to note that certain languages are more likely to be published into English than others. Of course, these are, you know, Western European languages like French, German, mm-hmm. Spanish, and Italian, uh, which, I mean, that that's not really surprising. No, I, I figure if I were to guess, like, what area of the, or, you know, geography-wise, um, and what, what uh, general area would would be translated most my my guess would kind of be europe (laughs) the white people countries (laughs) (laughs) yes yes but i do see on the chart uh arabic and chinese are are uh shortly after italian so i think that's good yeah i i wonder what the breakdown is between cantonese and mandarin yeah i'd be very interested to see that i think that's absolutely fascinating a friend of mine um who is one of the Host for Women in Translation Month Readathon, uh, which we do uh, over on BookTube, noted that she studied languages in Eastern Europe, and like there are so few women writers translated from Eastern European languages. Mm. Uh, so one of her big books that she's promoting this year is a book by a Hungarian woman, which I will link mm. in the show notes some additional things that we've mentioned um, in this little preamble, but. I think it's so fascinating, and it's something that I just don't see talked about much on the booktornet. No. Yeah. I feel like, you know, Women in Translation gets its buzz in in August, but, like, even these stats, like, I've 
participated in Women in Translation Month probably for the last three years. Um, and I've never actually like gone out to the site and looked at the stats. So I feel like it's probably something that needs to be brought to light more because I, I think we all just kind of highlight it for a month. Maybe don't look into it too much, but just maybe take from the TBR some of the stuff that you have in your stacks that are translations and just kind of move on. Uh, and that's something that I need to do better too at just reading more translated works throughout the year and even reading books, you know, that are from non-American authors throughout the year. Um, and uh, seeing these stats and, and focusing on that more through this theme has definitely helped me personally as well. I, I really appreciate what the creator has done this year with noting uh, even more marginalized groups within the Women in Translation Month like category. So she has set up some prompts for 2020. Um, again, I'll link that in the show notes, but some of them are, uh, you know, read African women, read indigenous women, uh, translated obviously from their original languages, read Middle Eastern women, queer women, um, and South Asian women. And she points out to these groups that she has seen from the stats that they are also even more underrepresented than other kinds of women in translation, which I really appreciate that she did that. Yeah, that's very helpful and, and very enlightening. Awesome. All right. Well, I think it's time to get into our discussion picks. Sounds great. Can't wait. All right. So I have the first one, and that is Breasts and Eggs by Miyako Kawakami, and that's translated by Sam Bett and David Boyd, and this is out from Europa. Uh, fun fact, uh, the translators, I believe, split up the translation uh, one did the prose predominantly, and one did the dialogue. Which, when you mentioned that to me earlier, I like was shocked because I initially thought that one had done book one, and because the book, I, like we mentioned on the previous episode, the book is split into two parts: um, book one, which is breasts, and then book two, which is eggs. And I, I figured that one had taken one, and the other had had taken the you know the second one, and. Not the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was I was blown away by that. And uh, Jacqueline read this before I did, and basically, you know, via the internet, shoved the book into my hands and was like, "Read this." <laughs> <laughs> well, good because you told me then, and I loved it too. So I guess Jacqueline is the one that we should really be giving our claps to, right? <laughs> yes. There's so many great books coming out from Europa, and so sometimes I lose track of them all. And then originally. I hadn't really been looking at this book because there wasn't an audiobook, but the audiobook was delayed and came out later, so I was able to listen to it. And I'm so glad. This book is fabulous. Uh, so, like we said, this is originally published in uh, 2019 in uh, Japanese and then was translated and just came out this past spring here in English. And so the first book, uh, what we could call Breasts, focus on um, the narrator and her sister and her niece who have come to visit her in Tokyo from Osaka. And her sister wants a boob job. And there's lots of discussions about women's bodies mm -hmm. and trying to make them more acceptable for men's eyes mm -hmm. and the links like like dyeing your nipples essentially uh -huh. i just i never knew any of this information and like what man is worth that you know like i know but at the same time her sister was like this is for me in many ways right and it was just an interesting kind of situation and conversations to kind of be on a fly on a wall for with this novel Right. Because like 
Natsuko, who's the protagonist, and then her sister Makiko, who is considering um, the the kind of breast enhancement. She works, uh, Makiko works in like, I think it's like a bar or, or something and um, kind of takes, you know, to some extent, maybe some hostess type d- duties. And so I was thinking, okay, you know, that from the, the gaze of like, I'm satisfying male customers. So I want to do this um, because I, you know, feel pressure uh, as this is the acceptable thing. I, I felt that. And then when she started talking about like, the nipple color. I was like, wait, no one's going to see that. Like, this is just pressure that she's getting, you know, from, uh, the outside world, even just like in personally to really affect her self-esteem to say, yeah, I think it even Natsuko's like, she even says like, well, who's going to see that? <laughs> she's like, well, just me. And she's like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, and like talking <laughs> about how painful it is and how many weeks you have to do it. And Natsuko's just like, for what? Like, why go through all that pain? And, and that's what, you know, Makiko ends up doing that. She's like, well, I ended up just stopping because I was in so much pain and, and, you know, I'm the only one seeing this stuff. And it's just like the amount of pressure felt by, by women to have this, this certain standard of beauty, even things that you, that aren't outwardly seen by other people is so strong that she felt that she needed to, to, to do that and focus so heavily on it. So it was just very, very interesting. And the niece, um, Midoriko, uh, is this teenager, very angsty Mm -hmm. and feeling all the feelings. And there's lots of discussions (laughs) in her journals that we have little excerpts of about periods and how she never wants to have a child. Uh, It's like a a mind warp, you know, the idea that you can then bear children and she's dealing with that and having all of these thoughts about it. And it's really interesting because she has decided not to talk to her mom, Makiko, and she hasn't talked to her in like a year. So they've lived together, but they haven't been (laughs) talking. And it's very teenagery, and so the tone and the style of the first section of this novel are very very set on this summer uh, experience of them visiting uh, the narrator and, and that experience and it, I was just has a very particular tone and then when you get to the second book in the novel, it just totally changes. I feel like the first book is so focused on these three women and very focused on the decision for Makiko to consider this surgery, and then um, the introspective thoughts of the jur- in the journal of Midoriko on how those decisions are affecting her as the daughter, and why you know her way of thinking of I don't want children, and I you know I have these eggs coming out of me when I have my period every month, and I don't even want children. Like it's so unfair that you know, I have to go through this is such a focus. And and Natsuko's in this story, but like, it's very much centered between this mother and daughter. And then we go into the second book where it's, it's truly mainly just focused on Natsuko and her decision on, on whether she wants to have a child. And like, you hear from Makiko and Midoriko, like occasionally in the second part, but it's it's very much still more focused on on Natsuko versus um, the three of them primarily in the first book. Yeah, and the second book also expands, you know, looking at Natsuko and uh, expands to other women that aren't in her family. And it's also 10-ish years later. 
it's, uh, you know, Midoriko has grown up and she is, you know, in college and has a boyfriend and like all this stuff. And so uh, Natsuko is faced with the end of her years of fertility and whether or not she wants to have a child. And she doesn't use the word asexuality in the book, to be clear, but she makes it very clear that she is a type of person who does not want to have sex. And she's tried it, didn't like it. She can fall in love, so she's not aromantic, uh, but she just doesn't want anything to do with that. But it's the complex feelings of, well, you know, in her experience, you have to have sex to have a child. Those things have to go together. And then she begins exploring sperm donors, and it just takes you down this whole different mm-hmm. journey. Yeah, uh, it the focus on having children via a sperm donor and some of the the a, a the legal obstacles in Japanese culture um you know she if she were to find uh, an organization to find a sperm donor it would have to be outside of Japan um because there are laws requiring that you have to to pretty much be like a heterosexual couple in order to get that done as her as a single parent would likely have to look outside of Japan which a, it has or has its own problems, <laughs> right? Um, but then also the conversations of, you know, from the child's perspective, what it is like when they find out that they were conceived via a sperm donor and might not know or be able to find who their true father is. I guess I never really realized that. You know, I've read different books and seen movies and media and things where a sperm donor is considered or, or used in, and it never talks about, you know, when that child grows up and finds out that they don't really know who their true father is, how that can be extremely traumatic and scarring for that individual. This That's deeply explored in this book, and I've never really thought or considered that when when it's when that is brought up in in various stories and there's even touched on this man who is like a speaker and his dad uh was infertile and so he is the product of a sperm donor but he didn't find out until much later in his life Uh, and so there's a discussion of that pressure that his mom had to have a child and you know of course the woman is blamed and so, like, some of the secrecy about sperm donors and, like, you go to this clinic and, like, all this stuff. So uh, I it was just this whole conversation about having children also. Like, is it, you know, in today's day and age with everything going on, is it moral to have a child? And the author talks about in an interview that this conversation that's in the novel is inspired much by her own experience of choosing to have a child. And... So she said that when she did have a child, that many people were disappointed in her. A lot of feminists were disappointed in her for choosing to have a child. But she said this was something that she wanted and she Mm -hmm. did seriously consider. But this was her choice. And that's something she wanted to portray in the novel as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. And and I feel like. You can you can tell or feel that in the story as well because, like we said, there in book two, a lot of female characters, a lot of them are are either artists or kind of in the the literary world with Natsuko, who is a novelist. They have differing opinions and they bring those to the table. On when she's kind of telling uh, her friends, "Hey, I'm considering uh, having a child and and using a sperm donor and things like that." The Differing opinions, I feel like, show different facets of what 
various women can think about a decision like this. And you saying that you heard that, uh, an interview that this is, you know, based off partially based off of her decision. I wonder if she got some of that, those differing perspectives and decided to include them in the novel. Oh, I'm, I'm sure she did. She, yeah, she, she talked about how, you know, difficult it was. And I, I mean, she didn't, specify like how she had a child like she didn't go into those details she mainly talked about just the choice to have a child period and that's also talked about in the book and it reminded me a lot of some of the conversation around nicole chung's uh Mm, memoir mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. her uh, interracial adoption and you know discovering her biological family and coming to terms with that i don't think the average person has thinks about these kinds of things as someone who, if I were to have children, would have to go through adoption, mm-hmm. I, I've thought about it a lot. And so I just found it very engaging to read a text like this and engage with it in that way, in an intellectual way. And it's just very thought-provoking. I'm just gushing at this point, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in the book, too, they mention, um, you know, the differences between an open and closed adoption and how they're trying to push that in the sperm donor world as well to, to open, uh, more of the donor information. So if a child does want to find who their father is, they have the ability to do that. And yeah, I felt like a lot of that was reflected in Nicole Chun's book as well, talking about the difference between open and closed adoption, which I didn't really know a lot about adoption before I read that book. I think it was, it came out uh, two years ago now. Those differences on whether an adoption is open or closed greatly affects the legal ramifications of whether or not you as a child can find who your biological parents are. Um, And so that ties in very, you know, um, relevantly to this book. And I definitely got some of those vibes as well as I was reading this. And the author also said she didn't want to give definite answers to all of these questions that are raised mm. in the book. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate mm-hmm. that because it's more like she's just presenting you with this information and these thought experiments through these characters' conversations mm-hmm. and the choices that they make in the end, which we won't spoil. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course. But she's more asking you to think about these things yourself and come to your own conclusions, but address this information and to confront it because I think right. so many people just think if they have a child, they'll have a biological child and like all this information. But mm-hmm. for many people, it's not that straightforward. Even in the story too, like when she mentions to her her friends, hey, I'm thinking about this, they're like, well, like, have you really thought about it? And she's like, hey, I've been thinking about this for two years. Like, there's all these things you consider. And you get the breadth of that, the heaviness of the decision and all the options and things like that, uh, things to consider um, in this book, which I really appreciated. Um, because a lot of the times I feel like books give one specific viewpoint um, on, you know, character makes a decision on this. They evaluate maybe one or two things and then they proceed. And, and it's you don't marinate on that decision a lot. And in this one, you can definitely tell that she didn't just come up with a son of women said, you know, I want to do this. It's like, no, this has literally been consuming my life for, uh, various years. And there's so many things that weigh down this decision. And you can feel that in this book. There, there are a lot of women in this book who have children and, or who make the decision 
to not have children. And so like for like her sister, Makiko got pregnant when she was when younger. There's another writer who was with a man, but is no longer with a man. So she is also single and raising a child. There's a woman who chooses not to have children. And so you like you see the different ways that women end up on their own raising a child, or you see a woman who's chosen not to have a child. Like, so you see these women on their own making these different decisions. And it's like all of the arguments that people tell her why she shouldn't have children. There's a character to counteract that, Mm -hmm. you know? And I found that very interesting the way that the characters themselves and what different facets of motherhood they represented mm-hmm. were very well thought out. And it's just a very well done book. And I was, I don't know, fascinated. <laughs> I could probably reread it and we could talk another two hours about it. But. I agree. And, and that's the, the thing with it being, you know, 430 pages. Um, yeah. You know, at, when I first got it in the mail, I was like, oh my God, this is a thick book. <laughs> like, <laughs> What, like, how are we going to talk for 400 pages about breasts and eggs? I thought it was going to be like a 200 page, um, you know, thin novel or whatever. Uh, but like you really are getting, uh, a lot of awesome content and I felt like I flew through it in, you know, not very many sittings, um, because the, the content is so enriching and there's so many different viewpoints and you're hearing from all of these uh, like great female perspectives, um, that I felt like it, d- it didn't drag. Um, and honestly, I caught probably could have read, uh, another hundred pages. Uh, and I feel like it's a real testament to Miyako Kawakami's, um, you know, investment probably personally as well in the story. So I will link that, uh, LA review of books interview podcast, uh, in the show notes, if you want to go here. Uh, her talk about that. And I will link the book club where the two uh, translators talk about their process of translating as well. So if you want to go and uh, hear more about that, you will have that information. So that is Breasts and Eggs by Miyako Kawakami, translated by Sam Bett and David Boyd. And that is out from Europa. Uh, And Sachi, you have our next discussion pick. Yes. So our next discussion pick is The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, and that's translated by Steven Snyder. And this is out from Pantheon Books. And um, we not exactly intentionally, but ended up both picking uh, (laughs) Japanese translated works from Japanese women. Consequently, too, we realized today that both books feature female novelists as the protagonists. (laughs) So two very different stories, but similar um, types of occupations uh, for each of our protagonists. And then obviously both the the authors being Japanese women. Um, But this was originally published in 1994 and then translated uh, in 2019. Like we mentioned in the the previous um, episode, just a quick synopsis because uh, this is a very kind of sci-fi uh, type uh, book. The novelist is unnamed. She's an unnamed protagonist, uh, lived on an island uh, controlled by the memory police. And things start disappearing, quote unquote, disappear, but like literally physically also disappearing. And the memory police are tasked with removing all items and memories related to the thing that has disappeared. The more time progresses, the more severe the amount of or the the types of things start disappearing. The like I think the the book opens up with one of the first things disappearing is birds and then they like have to like 
all the birds disappear from the sky and stuff. And like, uh, the, the protagonist, her, her, um, father would study birds. So they had to like destroy all of his notes on different birds and all these things. And they can't talk about them anymore. And then, um, you know, collectively as things disappear over time, um, the people in, in the country also start having, start having trouble remembering those things. So like, people don't even remember what like the word bird is <laughs> and things. And it's just a really like trippy and kind of interesting um, premise and thought process. And so, you know, the, the main theme, as you could probably tell is memory and, you know, the focus on memory is so strong. I felt, I think I, when I was jotting down notes for this book towards the very end, I'm like me- memory itself is like a character in the book. And you know, I felt like the way we remember things and how memory affects us as a society and culture is deeply explored in this book. And I'd never really thought of memory that hard, right? You know, it's like, (laughs) when do you sit down and think about like your memories and how they affect you and things like that? (laughs) Like I hadn't really before until I read this book. I just was very much impacted by it and it very introspectively made me think about, you know, how you remember things um, and, you know, how that influences what your beliefs are and things like that. And I, re- I would be, I, after reading it, I was like, I really want to see what Kendra's thoughts are <laughs> on how memory was portrayed in the book and, and if it made you think about memory differently. I thought a lot about... Um the desire to control memory. So you think about, you know, the Victor writes the history books kind of idea and destruction of, of cultures by trying to remove that cultural memory, whether with language or, or just writing history or not allowing people to speak their own language, just that kind of role of society because the memory police are actual like physical people who like invade homes looking for people who can actually remember things and, and destroying them essentially. And that just, it just made me think of that a lot. Uh, I remember, is it do not say we have nothing by Madeleine Tien and how when the Chinese revolution happens, there's a lot of, you know, communist propaganda and there's a lot of themes of music and like you have to get rid of all these Western influences and, yeah. Yes. And the compositions and destroying and the burning of the music. Mm-hmm. And like, that's kind of like the visions I was getting um, while reading this book. I didn't think of that. Yeah. But yeah, that's exactly, um, you know, in line with some of the themes from this book. I think I mentioned in the previous episode, a lot of what I was reminded of was like Fahrenheit 451 and and things like World War II and, and 1984 and things like that. But um, do not say we have nothing would also align with some of the things that the memory police do in this book. And like, if you're a historical fiction person or a person who likes to watch like some of those like World War II movies and stuff where, you know, they inflicting force in this case, the memory police like barges in and they're like, where's all your stuff on X, Y, Z. And like, and it's like super scary. And I'm like, I like would read chapters with the memory police and I would be like, 
that was extremely terrifying. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like holding my breath as I'm reading to be like, oh, the, like, what are they going to do? Like, it's like so terrifying. Um, if you like that kind of stuff, <laughs> you might like this book. Um, <laughs> but it's very reminiscent of, of those, um, those narratives as well on, you know, these oppressive forces that are looking to censor and control the thoughts and the narrative and the, the culture of, of people, um, that they're, that they're trying to oppress. Definitely. Yeah. Cause there's a, there, no one's really named in the book. Mm -mm. So we have like the narrator (laughs) and then we have R who's her editor yep. for her novels and then he though can remember things so he has to mm-hmm. go into hiding this is really on really early on in the books so and not yes. spoiler yeah and he hides in her house in this like little room and mm-hmm. it reminded me of like as a kid when I first read about the holocaust yeah. and you know the diary of Anne Frank and mm-hmm. like hiding people there and it's like a similar idea where you're, where you're trying to hide them and then like they're trying to do genetic tests on them to see if their ability to remember things is hereditary mm-hmm. and like all the stuff. And, um, yeah, it's a very intense moments when the memory police like invade houses and, you know, look for hidden people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Like I was just so like tense, <laughs> but then also <laughs> I was like, I couldn't stop reading. Right. I'm like flipping through so quickly in those chapters and stuff, which I felt like was very compelling. There's also a, a kind of a story within a story in this book. It it um, is one of the stories that the the unnamed protagonist is is writing throughout the book, and I feel like this is like a classic thing to do in literature, where the story within the story is yeah. a reflection <laughs> of the actual story that you're reading, um, and I I felt like a the story I feel like was really just interesting. I was like. I'd read this. This sounds cool. And then B, like, you know, the further (laughs) along you get through it and you realize like, oh, this is, you know, just really emphasizing the thoughts and feelings of the characters and you're flowing in and out of the two stories to, to emphasize the true points of each. Um, by the time you get to the end of that, that short story that she is writing, I just felt even more connected to the the actual prose of the book because I just felt like I was understanding it better um, by getting this this narrative story that she was writing in addition to like what Yoko Oga was writing, right? So I really liked that that aspect of the book. I don't know what your thoughts were on if that worked for you or not, but I thought it it worked. Yeah, I really I really liked that seeing the creativity there from the narrator and on the audiobook those sections are marked by this like wishing ocean sound because they're on an oh, island really it's, okay cool it's really interesting and at first i was like <laughs> looking around like you're like what's happening the, where's the nature sound like and i realized it was on the audiobook <laughs> i was like this is what happens when you listen late at night kendra yeah. um but the f- story is about a typist and she's locked in a tower by her typing teacher and as the stories progress, you notice those similarities in the mirroring and there's a similar theme of disappearing and losing your individuality and your own individual voice um, that's in the two books. And, you know, because they're on an island and it's very insular, it reminded me of other kind of weird societies like The Giver 
mm-hmm. where there's a evil regime ruling over this insular society and mm-hmm. what starts out seeming kind of normal-ish is obviously very <laughs> not very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the fact that they're trapped on this island creates this, like, I don't want to say, like, locked room kind of idea, but it's like mm-hmm. no one, they have no communication with the outside. Mm-hmm. So it's like you all you have is this island and these people and there's no opportunity to escape that really you just have to right. live with what you you have yeah i agree when when you when we were uh, or when i read that this was an island and things like that i immediately just envisioned this as japan right because japan is also an island did you think that as well i was wondering if you would have immediately thought that or if you were just kind of thinking just a remote island random country type random society well, I thought it might be like an island off the coast of Japan because I know there are lots yeah. of islands um, yes, off the coast are, yeah. and different things. Uh, so I just thought it was just like an island in Japan somewhere. And there's like, since there's a ferry, that implied a mainland. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I was. And then there's there's like an earthquake. So I was like, okay, this has got to be like in the Japan type area, right? Like yeah. heavy earthquake. Uh, area and that's like definitely normal part of you know everyday living for them in japan is there's always earthquakes and such so yeah and and there's you know tsunamis there's a giant wave Mm -hmm. after the earthquake and um and it was interesting when calendars disappear like the seasons quit changing i know i was like yeah that's what like what i i think (laughs) i know i feel like we talked about this a little in the previous episode but i Part of me, like, was fine not having all of the details, like, on how exactly the disappearings worked. But, yeah, like, when the calendar thing happened, I'm like, can you please explain to me why it's winter all the time now? (laughs) Like, I get no more birds in the sky or whatever and, you know, some physical things disappearing. But I was like, how do you get the weather and it's staying the same? (laughs) Like, I didn't understand that. And, like, I... uh, I, I do this with my husband sometimes where I just like, I'm so engrossed in a book that I like, I have to talk to someone about it. And he's just like closest proximity. And every time something would disappear, I'd be like, <gasps> and then he'd be like, what disappeared? And then, <laughs> and then I would be like calendars. And he's like, oh, so people just don't know what day of the week it is. And I'm like, but yeah, but like, not, they just said it's all winter now. And I'm like, he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> We're also, he's like, he's like read like half of like X amount of books vicariously through you at this point. I know. <laughs> so I, but it, every time though, like it, it was interesting to see when something disappeared, you kind of get the, the follow up in, in the following sentences and paragraphs of like how immediately it affected people and then how it starts affecting people over the weeks. And it is very interesting. Like Yoko Ogawa does a really awesome job at just like envisioning how this, how tangibly like these types of disappearances could affect people. Um, Because every time I, I, you know, something had disappeared. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen next? (laughs) What's going to (laughs) happen? Like when, when X, Y, Z disappears. And I feel like it's fairly believable, you know, minus the weather thing. I'm still confused by that, but (laughs) yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it's almost like someone gave her a writing prompt, like imagine this world and follow it to its logical end. 
And that's yeah. what that's kind of what I felt the story was because, you know, nothing is explained in the end, like nothing is really resolved or anything like that, which is fine. And so it's more like what would happen if this was a place or a thing or whatever. So I'd be very interested in a companion novel about maybe the mainland and what was yeah. going on there during that time. Like, I just want to know more about this world that she's created. I agree. And I feel like where, you know, to your point there, that it is an ambiguous ending. So if you're looking for, if you're one of those readers who want like a nice bow tied up at the end, like this is probably not the book for you. There are no bows um, here. <laughs> I know. I am not one of those people. I, I enjoy ambiguous endings. I feel like they're more realistic. So I very much liked this ending. Um, but I felt like if, if she wanted to go for another hundred pages, um, like the continuation of, okay, here's the the time skip or epilogue or even just a continuation like there's still more that you could discover um which i thought was very interesting and to me like led my brain to kind of go okay like what like this is kind of what i think could have happened after the last sentence is finished and i think readers could take their own understanding of what could happen you know after um the last sentence of this book is breathed right there's there's a lot of places they could go and I and I really liked that just like speculating to myself you know what would happen you know after after this story kind of ends um because I feel like there's a lot of a lot of different things that you could you could speculate I definitely want to pick up her backlist because she has a lot of translated backlist yes she does and I I have a lot of copies of her backlist I just you know shame on me for not picking them up yet. Um, I, I have a couple, uh, of them and now I'm like, ah, oh, I really want to read her other things too. And like, I was shocked, you know, when I Googled when this was originally published, I would have never guessed that this was published in 1994. Like that was the same year my sister was born. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I feel like, and maybe that's a testament to the translator or, or whatever. I don't know like how true it is to the original story. If they've, if they've maybe modernized something, some things or whatever, but like this premise, even just, you know, being how old it is, I'm like, that is so stinking cool. <laughs> like how awesome. Like I was very impressed by, by the story and like, obviously we're not going to spoilers, but like the, this book takes some wild directions and I really enjoyed like the latter half of how, um, some of the things are, are laid out and then, and then not tied up <laughs> kind of at the end. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so that was our uh, last discussion pick, the memory police by Yoko Ogawa. And that was translated by Steven Snyder and out from Pantheon books. We have further reading recommendations for you all. Yes. Um, my first further reading recommendation pick is Strange Weather in Tokyo by Hiromi Kawakami. Um, this is translated by Allison Markin, Markin Powell. Um, and this is a quiet and slow burn of a novel. So um, we've talked about two really great books um, that are are really great page turners. And this one is a, it's a slimmer novel and, um, you know, very kind of quiet um, uh, book that 
talks about a woman reconnecting with her old high school teacher after running into him in a bar 20 years later after she's graduated, which is interesting. So it, uh, the protagonist I think is, um, uh, in her, like, I think late thirties or early forties. Um, and I feel like it is harder to find books, um, with, with folks who aren't in their like twenties and early thirties. So, um, seeing this book with, uh, protagonists that age and then the, um, sensei or teacher, um, he's about 30 years her senior. So I, I just appreciated a little bit of a different perspective from, from this book. And my pick is, uh, Kyung Suk Shin, the author. Um, I've heard great things about, in particular, her novel, The Court Dancer, translated by Anton Herr, but really, I mean, Apparently, she's very prolific. And I have to give credit to my friend, Matthew Sharapa, who recommended not only Notes of a Crocodile, which I mentioned last episode, but has recommended this <laughs> book to me, I would say, pretty frequently for the last year or two. I should I should pick it up for sure. But there's also an audiobook, which is why I wanted to recommend it. It's out from Pegasus Books here in the United States. Hmm. And it's historical fiction about... Um, Korea when there was like this whole court thing situation happening and then you know Mm -hmm. part of the story starts out with this white man coming into the court and like trying to be an ambassador and them being like why are you here dude and Mm -hmm. like you know all sorts of courtly (laughs) politics and intrigue happens and I believe eventually he marries a Korean woman and he does. I've read this okay. one actually. <laughs> so yeah, it's set in feudal um, uh, Korea, and uh, there is a lot of um, discussion on like uh, this white man <laughs> who comes in, and uh, it's kind of it. It bothered me a little bit, but I get like what the author is trying to do. He he pretty much ex- exotifies uh, or exoticizes and. Um, like is very possessive of this this woman that he marries in in the court um and it shows from her perspective um being married to this man mainly because it's it's going to elevate her status and give her resources that she as a as a poor woman growing up didn't have Uh, but also like talks about how icky (laughs) it was like when some some of these white people who were looking to to colonize and have these relationships with um, the, the the leadership in these Asian countries to try to influence and and push Western um, thoughts and practices to them, um, how problematic um, those relationships and those people were. Um, so I, I initially when I read this, I was like, I don't know if I liked this, but the farther I've gotten away from it on like that perspective and seeing you know, this problematic character that I literally just like wanted to strangle him all the time. It was like, <laughs> that's the purpose of having him in there is to frustrate me. And so the farther I've gotten away from the book, the more I've been like, that was actually a great book because I, it drew me to like feel those feelings of anger and frustration. Um, and it, it is, uh, it is another thicker book that I did, uh, go get through really quickly. Yeah, and she just so. has so many books uh, that have been translated here in the United States, and mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you know, you know, even just five, six years ago, there weren't a lot of Korean women translated into English that were here at the American book market, but now they've gotten a lot of traction, um, and so it's been really great to see Korean literature and translation flourish here. 
Absolutely. So my next pick is Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto, and that is translated translated by Megan Backus. And this um, is centered around a uh, young woman who, after the death of her grandmother and guardian, um, is moving through the grieving process and moves in with um, her friend and his mother to form kind of this new kind of family um, unit and is focused on supporting each other during the grief of this woman that they all loved so much. And I felt like, I feel like Kitchen is, is a, not, it's not like a classic classic, but I feel like this is one of the books that a lot of people, when they think of Japanese translated books, they gravitate to um, this book and and even just you know banana mm-hmm. as a uh, as a translator she has a ton of different translated works mm-hmm. um, and so this is the the first one that I read uh, from her and I really enjoyed it and again it's a slim novel and everything and um, I feel like sometimes when I when I read reviews from people about Japanese translations about like, Japanese works are so quirky and like so like different oh and like I, like I know like conven- convenience store woman is is one of these like people just talk about how like weird and quirky it is and stuff like that like just like makes me cringe a little bit because I'm just like it's not quirky it's just the culture is different like that it's a cultural difference that you think it's weird and quirky but it's like very normal in Japanese culture and so like I've read reviews for Kitchen where people are like oh, it's like so like interesting and quirky and stuff. And like for a while I didn't read it because I was like, well, that's like not what I'm looking for in a Japanese translation. And lo and behold, I read it and I'm like, that is not how (laughs) I would read it as someone who is familiar with Japanese culture. It's just like Jap being Japanese. (laughs) And so uh, if you've seen some of that online and that's deterred you, please, please pick it up because it's a great book. Uh, And a lot of it is about grief and a lot of it is about finding your support systems and accepting people for who they are. Um, And I feel like I got so much more out of it than it just being a quirky novel. So that's my little PSA for today. (laughs) I'll get off my pedestal. (laughs) But that's my that's my second further reading that I would highly recommend for everyone. Uh, So my last further reading is Human Acts by Hong Kang, and that is translated by Deborah Smith. Uh, We have a QA and a with Deborah Smith that I'll link in the show notes. And this is such a fascinating book and I know that Hong Kang and Deborah Smith duos are kind of well not kind of they're controversial in the translator sphere but whether you consider this a translation or an adaption either way it's a beautiful book and both the author and the translator uh, approve of it so here we are (laughs) and I really loved Human Acts because it was about um uh, an idea of spirituality. So we have so many different perspectives and it's uh, in different, like uh, several different perspectives and they all were involved in this uprising, the student uprising, I think in the early eighties and it was squashed. And so a lot of people died and there was a lot of violence. A lot of uh, women were thrown into prison and violently assaulted there. So just heads up there is a trigger warnings for violence and violence towards women and all of the things 
but it's an incredibly beautiful book on a prose level and the way that it's expressed and just the idea of human acts, things that make us human. And I know I've talked about this before, but um, if you see me talk about this ARLs, I read you passages because it's just that kind of like <laughs> gorgeous book about what makes us human and what are the things that break us. And it's a beautiful contemplation on that. And I find Hong Kang in particular, very poetical kind of writer in her style and the way that she communicates. And I really think that comes across in Deborah Smith's translation, which I, I imagine is just a whole difficult thing when you're trying to write mm -hmm. poetry or poetical language in a translation. So anyway, I really love them. Um, so you can definitely check out all the resources on that, but whatever the book is, it is wonderful to read. So go forth and find that. And obviously I like the vegetarian as well. Um, and I've read the white book as well. I've read everything basically. Um, <laughs> I need to read the vegetarian and the white book. I've only read human acts, but I've heard amazing things about the other two titles as well. And, uh, I, I co-sign as well, just beautifully written for human acts, just I, it is very heavy and deals with extremely traumatic and heavy things. So be aware of that going into the book. Um, cause I didn't really know that. And I had to, I had to pause from it from, for a couple, um, of my sittings because it, it is, um, you know, very traumatic at times, but my goodness, is it beautifully written. So good. Yeah. And, um, the last thing I'll say for further reading is we have an interview with Tina Clover who translated Nagar Javadi's Disoriental and that has won all of the things. And so if you want to learn more about the translation process, that will be linked in the show notes. You go check that out. And I'll also link Tina Cover's new COVID project, which is translators. And I'm not sure if it's translators and the authors uh, or just the translators. They've gotten together and they'll read things on YouTube and it's and on social media and Twitter. So I will link all of the things it's fascinating. Like, cool. So you definitely go, go check that out. Um, Tina Cover does great work with um, works originally written in French, which we learned is the most popular language to translate into English. <laughs> Very true. It's full circle. It's just <laughs> fascinating. Anyway, that's it for today for Women in Translation Month. Thank you so much for following along with us. Uh, a reminder that a full transcript of this episode can be found uh, at readingwomenpodcast.com. All right, so that's our show. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. That really helps other people find us. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. Join us next time where Kendra and Jacqueline will be talking about anthologies. Uh, in the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thanks for listening.